0: She'd come up the stairs at the rear of the building like she knew I'd be in that first room at the top instead of the other one. I was in the kitchen that separated the two rooms at the time, heating up some more day-old coffee when I heard her pound on the door. I knew instantly when I snuck a sideways glance toward Shell and Rick's door, she'd found me. I also knew those kids were dead. As hard as she'd been chasing me the past two days, she had to be starving. And once she started to feed, she didn't stop till there was nothing left. It would have been me if I hadn't traded rooms with those kids. At the time, it seemed like the thing to do. The front one was just too small for two. All I needed was a place to plug in the laptop and transfer everything to the flash drive. And somewhere to hide the cash and the gun, of course. The rusted coil springs under the busted-down old sofa-bed provided the hiding place, and the wall socket next to it gave me the juice I needed to transfer the files. That and a cup of coffee or two were what my night was supposed to be all about, until she showed up. Looking for a chick calls herself Jones, I heard her say to Rick. She here? Her voice was the intolerable irritant in an unreachable place the festering mosquito bite that keeps you awake at night, furious about your own helplessness to it. No one here by that name, I heard Rick say, and knew right then they'd be his last words. I stepped quickly through the doorway into my room as I heard Rick's massive body being thrown across his room toward Shell. It wasn't the first time since this nightmare began I'd witnessed a life ended that way by my stalker and I knew exactly what came next after she finished tenderizing her prey. Last thing I saw before I slid the door shut was that she-creature lean her head back and transform into the thing she actually was, with all those teeth, pointed, lethally sharp, layered in rows like nothing I'd ever seen. And then came her shriek. The one I'd been running from and the kind of nightmare you just can't wake yourself out of. I fumbled with the little latch on the door out of the kitchen despite knowing it was pointless. The time I could be gaining was a far better defense. Her meal would take at least long enough to shove the flash drive into my pocket, grab the satchel and gun, and hope to put some pavement between me and the she-creature. As I jumped over the railing straight down to the lower flight of stairs, I heard her shriek again. It was one of triumph, proudly sated. Her feast was over. She was back on the hunt, and my feet were hitting the pavement working double time to make sure I wasn't her next meal. The only thing I had going for me at that point was the tiny bit of distance I'd just put between us and what I had on the flash drive. It didn't matter I'd left the laptop behind. As soon as I transferred the data I had on it, I'd wiped the drive. What mattered was I still had the video files. I looked down at my feet as they hit the pavement, and two things occurred to me at once. My name isn't Jones, and those weren't my feet. wake and let the engine idle to warm myself while making notes in the dream journal I keep on the dashboard. The thing about lucid dreaming that all those people who claim to be experts on it don't get is that for someone like me the point isn't to manipulate my dreams. It's for my dreams to manipulate me. How else am I going to figure out what they're trying to tell me? That, in a nutshell, pretty much explains why I've been journaling them and letting them lead the way for a while now. Before the dream ended, the sound of gears grinding had caught my attention as a bus rolled past, sputtering and lurching at the hands of someone who didn't seem to know how a stick shift works, someone who seemed oddly familiar to me. But what really stood out was the kid holding up the cell phone I'm pretty sure she was filming through the window. She wasn't filming me, though. She was pointing the cell phone to that shadowy place beneath the stairs I'd just jumped down from. As I turned to see what it was, the tall man stepped out from the darkness and tipped his hat toward the passing bus. I could only assume he was tipping it to the dragonfly painted on the side above the words Abuela Express, I'm used to being able to read in my dreams. Most writers can, but it's usually in English. Abuela is Spanish for grandmother. As it sputtered and lurched out onto the street, the face of a third girl was staring out at me from the back window. I recognized her, too. But from where? A streetlight was flickering on and off its dying bulb gasping for air as thick fog choked the life out of it. It intermittently illuminated a theater marquee across the street. Dagon was showing at the Eureka Theater. I make a list of the key points in the dream. Shell and Rick, a chick named Jones, a girl with a cell cam, thick fog, a bus called Abuela Express with three girls and no grandmothers the Eureka Theater, and the tall man with his faithful dragonfly, even if it was just painted on the side of a bus. What else? It felt like I was leaving something off the list. Something important. That much detail has given me too many dots to connect, beginning with Abuela. Connect that to a Spanish-made movie about a sea monster with an endless appetite for human flesh and i can't help but wonder if that connects to this little pickup my little home on wheels with everything that matters to me in the back is an isuzu ombre right about now i'd gladly trade sleeping in the cramped cab of a pickup for a night or two stretched out in the back seat of a bus even if it is a bus for grandmothers being driven by a girl who doesn't understand what a clutch is for Was it important that the dream was set in an old rooming house with a shared kitchen? Most of my dreams take place in run-down old hotels and shared spaces. My working theory is it's because that's what I know. It's what I've always known. And no matter what the message is, a dreamer might be channeling. We're always going to superimpose a certain amount of our own narrative onto the story. It's called projection. Look it up it wasn't always this way, you know. I've always had vivid dreams, but I just thought of them as a form of cheap entertainment, or maybe some roundabout way of problem solving, until they started coming true, and not in a good way. That's one problem there is no solution for. I need coffee before I can even begin to think about where to go next. I pull out of the RV park where I stayed the night and head back toward the town I passed on the way in, my road atlas ready and waiting on the passenger seat. Maybe that dream was trying to guide me to some place on the map, wake me up to a location I was meant to find. Or maybe it was just trying to give me some kind of Eureka moment. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if it isn't either one. The biggest problem I have with my nightly visions is they never really give me anything actionable. Just vivid images of what I've learned the hard way will come to pass. A kind of weather forecast for vivid dreamers. Forecasts that never tell me where or when it's going to rain, just that rain is coming I pull into a roadside diner that screams classic Americana in red and white trim. The blinking neon sign promises 24-hour coffee and reminds me of the theater marquee through thick fog in my dream. I can only hope coffee will clear that fog from my head. The parking lot is already beginning to fill, which is always a good sign. It's out of the way places like this that make driving the back roads my preferred route when I'm doing a book tour. The more cars out front, the better the food. I slide into a booth and turn the coffee cup upright, the universal sign for FILLER UP. The waitress calls me SWEETIE. I hate that. It's demeaning in a way she'll never comprehend. I hate the coffee even more. But it does the trick in a way no dismissive term of endearment ever could. What is it about roadside diners and their failure to understand that coffee can actually taste good? I pull out the dream journal and stare at the list of things I'd jotted down. I keep telling myself to stop trying to make sense out of any of these dreams. But how often do we actually listen to our higher self? On my best days, I tell myself that just paying attention to them could very well be all that's being asked of me. The question, the one that more and more seems to be consuming my every waking thought is, who's doing the asking? I stare at the swirling ocean of blackness in my cup and think about that Chick Jones in the dream. Whoever she is, she can't be all that different from me. After all, we're both on the run, only I haven't got a gun and satchel full of money. Gas money and the occasional place to stretch out for the night seem more like the impossible dream to me at this point. That and an endless cup of coffee are my idea of luxury. Six months ago I was actually earning enough to get by driving these roads peddling my books. Books that no one wants to buy anymore now that the economic downturns hit Middle America. Can't tell you how many times I've kicked myself for deciding to write absurdist humor. Seems like the only thing selling these days is either about vampires, werewolves, or erotica. Or worse, vampire-werewolf erotica. Nobody seems to want to laugh anymore. We've become a nation gripped with an acute case of nihilism, and that makes outcasts of absurdists like me, which in itself is absurd, since an absurdist is really nothing more than a nihilist with a sense of humor. You can't blame me for my attraction to risibility, though. Blame pop culture for turning the works of statesmen philosophers into TV game shows. That shit's hilarious and I'm just drawing the daily funnies in word pictures. I signal the waitress for a refill as my stomach complains. When you're living on the run, especially if it's poverty you're running from, coffee is pretty much all there is to keep you going. A shrink might just point out that I'm really only trying to outrun my dreams. But I have no reason to think they aren't telling me there's something coming for me something even hungrier than I am, infinitely hungry. The question is, for what? Naturally, once the coffee kicks in, the what-ifs kick into high gear. And once that happens, I'm lost in them. What if it isn't always a case of a person not remembering a dream? What if we're not receiving the ones meant for us? What if I'm not just observing a dream while someone else is having it, but it's being diverted to me? Wouldn't that make it impossible for the person it's meant for to remember it, since they never got it in the first place? What if, without that dream, the person it was meant for ends up making a decision that could get them killed? A chill comes over me, followed by a wave of goosebumps. The room seems to go still. The clanking of dishes and glassware, the banging of pots in the kitchen, all seem to freeze, except for a single sound repeating again and again. I look up to see the face of a woman in the booth on the far wall, tapping her spoon against her coffee cup. She's looking right at me. It's her. The one I forgot to mention in the dream journal. The one banging on Shell and Rick's door. The she-creature still in her human form. But for how long?